So my name is Carmen Lopez. Today is November 25th, 2016, and I am here with Teresa Sweeney for the Our Streets, Our Stories oral history project focused on the criminal justice system. Teresa, thank you so much for coming. Um, I wanted to uh, first ask you, what is your experience with the justice system? <laughs> well, my justice, it, it started a while ago. Actually, I started back in 1979. I started studying what was then a fairly new discipline called criminology and, and uh, criminal justice. Um, then I kind of took a break and had kids. And it was kind of ironic, in 2003, I ended up incarcerated in uh, Utah. I'm from Portland, Oregon, but I went to Utah, committed crime, and I was um, apprehended there. And it was very interesting because my what I was arrested for was traveler's checks. And in my mind, I'm not saying it was right, but in my mind, it was a fairly low-level crime. I was trying to get money to actually go back to school so I could complete my criminology degree. And um, I was put in, my bail was $250,000. My crimes, I, it was traveler's checks. I, I actually probably did about $4,000 worth, but my actual conviction was for $200 in traveler's checks. And like I said, my, my bail was $250,000. They didn't want me to get out. I was in county for three months when I went before the judge. Uh, I thought I was going home. The uh, Prosecutor agreed to probation. My uh, pre-sentence report said probation, but the judge said since I didn't do drugs and that I had abandoned my children in, in Oregon to come to Utah and commit crimes, that I was a danger to the citizens of Utah. In order to protect the citizens of Utah, I need to be incarcerated in a state prison for zero to five years. So that was a bit of a shock. Um, so I went, I went to the prison. Everything was kind of a, like I said, everything was a pretty, everything that could go wrong kind of went wrong. Um, when I got to prison, I was supposed to get up for parole fairly um, quickly, but that took a while. And then when I, after a few months, I went before the parole board. And when I get, got before the parole board, they said, why are you here? And I said, I don't know, let me go home. Um, but kind of backing up a little bit, the, the experience while I was incarcerated kind of verified everything I thought of the system beforehand. Um, and it wasn't like, I didn't experience any of the, the horrific stories that, that you hear, like people are always so intrigued, you know, oh, were you were in prison, what was it like? Um, and it wasn't the, um, you know, I wasn't raped, I wasn't beaten, I wasn't in fights. But the day-to-day -day, um, degradation and shame that goes along with it is absolutely horrific. The way of being kept from your children, not being able to, like, I was incarcerated for a total of 13 months. I never was able to have a visit. My phone calls were very rare because in order to call home, when I was in county, in order to call home, it would be $30 for 15 minutes. And my eldest daughter, who was 20 at the time, had moved home to take care of my other two children, who were um, 8 and 11 at the time, and so she couldn't afford those phone calls. And the things that, that got me about it were, were just little things, like uh, one time I, I had a, another reason I needed money um, was I had my teeth were, were in really bad shape, and so I was in a lot of pain and I went to the, I was taken to the infirmary one time and this was in county and there was this officer, I'll never forget him because he was, he was training an, another person. His name was Officer Rounds and he was training another um, guard and um, 
they were just being really, really crappy to me. And, you know, and I just sat down and I just asked them, I said, you know, I said, I just, I just need to know. I said, I understand security, understand that, you know, you need to pat us down and do all this stuff. I said, I don't understand why you need to be so crappy. I just don't get it. And I remember him looking at me. Um, first thing he said was, um, you know, well, what did you do? I said, well, what does that have to do with how you treat me? And he turned to the person he's trying to said, see, they never want to take responsibility. You know, they always say they don't want to do it. I said, no, 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 that's not it. I just don't understand what that has to do with how you're treating me. And what he said was he looked at me and he said, what you have to understand is the reason you're here is because society doesn't want you. And so you're very lucky that people like me are willing to take care of people like you. And that's basically kind of, to me, that always stuck out in my head because it really sums up how you're treated the entire time. Um, you know, especially like, I mean, both populations, male and female, are highly traumatized. But, you know, it's a highly traumatized population. And you're treated like crap every moment, every part of every day. Always. Always. Um, just just really difficult. Um it was it was hard. So when I um, when my time did come up to get to get paroled, um, another thing was I, I was in I had to compact back to Oregon, and one of the things in in Utah is they will not let you parole to housing. So here you are a person that's poor. They won't let you parole to housing, even if it was in Oregon. So they wouldn't let me parole to housing. So I was meeting with my um, the the interim PO person. And I was kind of asking her questions, and um, I told her that I would like her to, so that I had to get a different address. I couldn't go home to my place, so I had um, someone else agreed that I could stay with them. So I had a different address, and we were talking, and we were going over the, the stuff to go home for parole. And um, I was asking her questions, because one of the things that I needed mental health counseling, and I said, well, what does that mean? Um, and she just looked at me, she goes, why are you giving me so many problems? She goes, you know exactly what it means. You've been through this before, but I'm like, no, I haven't. I, I want to do everything exactly right because I don't want to come back here and explain it to me. Basically, I offended her so much, she intentionally um, messed up my paperwork. So I wasn't able to go home. I had to go to a halfway house, which was really hard too because my um, when I, I was released from parole there when, when the parole board said there was no reason I had to go to a halfway house or anything so I had to go to a halfway house which was still you know being treated like crap all the time and there was nothing in there that said that I said even why can't I you know go stay at the Y or go you know stay with somebody or something she said well that would cost money I said but that's you didn't ask me if I had money you know I have people that now will, will help me so basically um, I had to go to a halfway house and she also for the halfway house she told the, the person that was going to be my counselor there that I was really difficult, I was really angry, I was a problem. So when I got there the first day, he was saying, you know, I don't know what your issue is, why you're giving so many problems. And I was just really taken aback by it because I had been nothing but polite to her the whole time. Basically, I just wanted to make sure that I fulfilled all the pieces that I needed to do for, for um, parole. Um, but what came out of that was, because I, I ended up being at the halfway house for three months, and the, my, my worker there, he ended up, um, because she screwed up my stuff so bad, he actually ended up filing a complaint against her because he could tell that it was nothing that I did wrong because the way he dealt with me the whole time and everything, and I'm sure you know she didn't lose her job or anything, but it did go in as a complaint, but it just shows how the um, 
whatever their mood is can change it. It made it where it was three more months without my kids. It made three more months with my kids without me. Um, and also the way that halfway houses are set up in Utah is I could get out if people from there would come visit me and pick me up, but I didn't know anybody because I wasn't from there. So I had to get special permission because the only place I could go was to work. So I had to get special permission to even go get, um, you know, you have to get permission because I needed to go to Walmart and buy bras and I have to have this special thing and it was just really, really hard. And the officers, the counselor I had, he wasn't too bad, but generally the officers there were just as horrible. And, th and that's what I tell people. When I was incarcerated, I was never fearful from the other women. It was always the officers. The officers were so abusive. You know, and you had things like you had the one officer that he always would watch you taking a shower. And then we had the, we had a doctor at the prison. And I, I'd forgotten about him until the other day. And we had this one doctor. And no matter what you went in for, he had to examine your breasts. Everything. I'm like, I went in there because I went in there because I had to see him first for my mental health, get mental health meds. He had to look at my breasts. Everyone, and we used to joke around about it, but there was nothing you could do. He just had to look at your breasts. And his nurse was complicit in it because his nurse was always there with him. And it was just, it drove me crazy because I can't remember all the things you, know, you go for. And you, and it wasn't just he had to look at your breasts. He had to examine them. It's like, what, what are you doing examining my breasts? I came in for running nose. Um, but my, my, my general contention and opinion is most people that work in prisons are there because they can't get a job anywhere else. Um, any of the doctors or psychiatrists. Because if you're any good, you quit. Just like there were two officers that were good at the prison. They were husband and wife, and they were actually pretty nice. And they were quitting because they just couldn't stand witnessing all the abuse and all the, the negativity um, of it. And then, so I was released. Um, I came back home in September of 2004. Um, one of the things I made sure when I was incarcerated is I couldn't, because I, I felt so bad about being away from my kids, I couldn't waste the time. So I made sure I actually had, and I took it to the parole board. I had this whole list of things I was going to do. And within 15 months of being released, I reunited with my children, graduated college, got a full-time job, and was released from parole early. Um, the problem was that's when I really started seeing uh, what the collateral consequences were going to be as far as not being able to find a job. Um, I was working full-time, but I was working making minimal wage, so that wasn't enough to, um, to, to you know, support my kids. Um, one of the funny things was I eventually got a job working in an um, accounting department, which was kind of funny since my, my crimes were, were fraud, but I was working in an accounting department in a company that, um, it's the listing service for real estate. And it was, it was a pretty good job. I liked it, but I, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I was there for several years. And then what I did was I decided, because the crash happened, I thought, oh, this will be a good time to go back to um, school. So I went back to school, um, received my master's degrees in criminology and criminal justice. It was kind of hard, though, because the, when the crash happened, I also um, wasn't able, I didn't get a fellowship or anything getting my master's, so I now owe $81,000 in, in uh, debt, which is really hard. And I don't know why... I was kind of looked over for everything because I was always pretty open about my criminal history. So I don't know if it was my criminal history, um, and I also wish they would have told me I needed to get a different degree, or if it was the fact that I was older because I was also the oldest person in my entire department. There was only one professor that was older than me. 
So um, I graduated with my master's in 2010, and uh, I thought the doors would open then. I applied for a few jobs and re-entry because I thought that that's since I'd done well re-entering, but I was told no because of my criminal history several times. Um, I started out, I finally got a job at a, uh, residential, uh, a residential drug and alcohol treatment center for women that um, all the women were criminal justice involved. And that was a hard one because basically it was just a little bit above minimum wage. It was working overnights. It was working all these, these horrible shifts. And I had to really fight hard to get the job there because the woman, my boss didn't want to hire me because I had a master's degree. And I always kind of had big picture ideas because while I was um, getting, while I was looking for regular work, I also got involved in advocacy. I worked with Partnership for Safety and Justice. I did research for them on how court-ordered financial obligations affect the reentry process. I got really involved in advocacy work. I um, became part of an organization called Hands Across the Bridge where we have the largest one-day recovery event west of Mississippi, and it's a lot of advocacy work. I started public speaking. I was on the Speakers Bureau. I started doing that kind of work. I eventually, um, while working at the um, Rehabilitation Center, I started working on Ban the Box in Oregon, and for the Ban the Box movement, for the, at the state level, I testified in front of the legislature, did some media appearances, um, and that kind of stuff. And then during this time, too, I also, because I still couldn't find a job, I went back to Utah and went through the whole process. I actually obtained a full and unconditional pardon from the state of Utah. And so I thought, then, okay, it's all okay. All the doors will open and everything will be wonderful. And then I was told I needed to get it expunged. And at that point, I just said, forget it. I'm not even, I'm not going to try it. I was done. I had spent thousands of dollars, all this kind of stuff, and I no longer um, was willing to live with that shame, so I'm pretty open. Um, I get criticism from my family because I'm so open and so vocal about it, and like I said, I've been on TV and do all this kind of stuff. Um, but it's really hard because my life has become where it's defined by a small point in time. And it's not that I, because um, I, had, I had been convicted one other time for um, the, same type of, the same type of offense, um, identity theft. But, and it's not that I'm justifying it, but it was, it was um, economic crimes. It was hard, you know, I'd been through years of trauma and abuse and depression, all this kind of stuff, and I wasn't making the best decisions. And I was always trying, struggling, trying to take care of my family. And now it, it was just this insurmountable Thing. It's just, it's so huge. And, and people are so, you know, like when you say you that you've been incarcerated, people, um, it's always just that kind of titillating type stuff. And oh, what was it? But it's never about, um, oh, I'm sorry. How did you get there? What it was on um, my children and just the guilt um, and the fact that you're, I think with women, there's the added thing, of, you know, because it's like 75 to 80% of women that, that are incarcerated, they have they have children that they're responsible for. I was very fortunate in that my eldest daughter was able to move back home and take care of my younger two. But I don't I don't know what I would have done otherwise because I don't think people would have my family would have really stepped up to do that. Um, so basic. Can you talk more about your your experience as a mother? Uh, yeah, it, it's it's horrific. <laughs> it's um, 
because you figure like when you go to when I went to prison, you're you're when you get there, they do this place where they assess you. So you're locked down 23 hours a day. You get out for one hour a day, and that hour you have to take your shower, uh, make your phone calls. Um, well, it would be like sometimes it'd be at five o'clock in the morning Utah time or six o'clock in the morning Utah time, which is even earlier in Oregon, so I couldn't call my kids. So the whole month I was in there, I never got to talk to my kids. Um, once I got out, I was able to, but I could never talk to them. I had a girlfriend that started taking phone calls because then I could talk, it was $30, it was $30 for 30 minutes. So then I got to talk a little bit longer, uh, but not talking to them. Um, and just the shame of it, and, and, and like I say, because I've always been driven, I've, I've, I've always been a caretaker. My kids were the center of my world, and to have it where I didn't see them for 13 months was just, it, it, it's, it's horrific. And if you, okay, if you want to hear about how other mothers, too, this is another, another story that, 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 that I have of, of how it was, because I think Mother's Day is probably the, the hardest day for everyone in prison. Um, because everyone, like I said, most women there have kids, they or they've lost their kids, whatever, and and you're you're made to feel so horrible because here you are. What kind? How can you be a good mother if you're in prison? Those two don't really go together, and nothing is done to make it where you can see your children because, like people that come to visit, the visitors are always they're treated horribly. They're subjected to searches and the dogs and the whole thing and. At one point, my family asked if I, they should bring out my kids, and I didn't want them to bring out my kids because I felt it would be more upsetting for them. I was afraid that something would happen where I, we wouldn't get the visit or something like that, and I was afraid it'd be more traumatizing. But so Mother's Day is really difficult. So we had planned this, and I was one of the people who was on the planning committee. We planned, we were able to plan this Mother's Day dinner, and what we did was we collected money from everybody. And, and the women that couldn't pay, we all kind of, the guards kind of, you're not supposed to pay for anybody else's anything, but we all made sure that everybody had money. And we went, we bought, and we paid for it. We bought all the food. We, they went and got decorations for us. We, everybody was excited because we had ice cream. And um, one of the things, the, the, the posters that we put up everywhere, it said, you know, bring extra bowls so you can have the food because we bought the food, right? They said, bring the bowls, you have more food. And food is a big motivator in prison because it's so horrible there. And to actually have real food and to have ice cream was, because that's the only time in the year that you get ice cream is, is this time. So we, we go in and the, the gym was decorated nice. And um, it was so cool. These women from another um, unit had actually made paper corsages for everybody. And they had colored them and cut them out and they tied them. So when you came in, you got your paper corsage. You got to see all the food all laid out. We had music. We weren't allowed to dance because they were afraid we'd get sexual. So um, we couldn't dance at all, but there was music and there were these, these beautiful paper flowers. And it was... Um, just, just, it was really nice. And for a little while, you could actually forget where you were. And we were able to be together and console each other because everybody's feeling bad because it's Mother's Day. Um, people didn't have visits. I don't know if it was a day that we couldn't. I just remember that everybody that I, that I can remember seeing that was in prison was there. And um, then it came time to go back. And I was kind of, because I was helping clean up, because I had to, so I was one of the last people to kind of go back. Um, they have to escort you back across, and when we go in, they have us all, there's an area that you're, that you're in before you go into your individual unit. So there's this, this area, 
where they were. And when I got there, the officers were just there and they were yelling at us and screaming at us. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And, and, and some of the women were crying and stuff like that. And this one officer was Scott. She was just a pleasant one. She, and she was saying, I don't, she said, if I had my fucking way, you guys would never fucking have any holidays. You wouldn't have Christmas. You wouldn't have Thanksgiving. She said, who in the fuck are you to have you know, parties? None of you deserve this. None and they were calling us thieves because we had our food. Everybody was sitting there with their food that we had, right? But we had bought it. And we were told that we could have it back, we could take it in these containers. And they didn't say anything when we were leaving with the containers and when they saw us putting everything in the containers. But when we got there, they had us all bunched up together. And they were just, and it was so awful. And she was screaming, this is contraband, this is con contraband, take that shit off. And they were just tearing off all the, the corsage, you know, the things that people had on their arms. And that's what I remember seeing was the, the food inside the dumpsters, just all of this food and the um, all the, the, the corsages just all, like all mushed together, you know. And so it was a way that we felt like human beings for a while. And it was a way, like I said, we bought the food. We did everything. They saw when we were drawing all the little, I mean, it wasn't like it was any kind of contraband thing. But this one officer, she she hated us so, she was, she was always just so nasty to everyone. Um, and so that that was the end of that, and just just put it all. And that's that's how they that's how they treat you <laughs> when you're a mother in prison. It's really <laughs> difficult, very difficult. How do you envision a different justice system? <laughs> well, for me, um, I base everything on restorative justice, and for me, it has to come at every level because. Right now, what, we're, what we concentrate now is a, is a system It's completely punitive. And we know it doesn't work. The thing is, people keep saying, oh, we know it works. People choose not to do it. We know that these excruciating long you know, sentences don't work. You know, you have these ridiculous bail. You have public defenders that are overworked and can't take care of people. And it's so crazy, and I just don't understand our our need to feel punished. Like, you know, like when people say things, well, they only got 20 years. 20 years, my God, that's, that's two lifetimes. But for me, with restorative justice, because restorative justice is, it for, focuses on harm. Instead of looking at the crime committed, and actually restorative justice was started as a victim advocacy movement, because the victims of crime so much get pushed to the side, and their needs and wants are, are totally dismissed. But what restorative justice does is it looks at the harms and it looks at the harms to the victim, the harms to the community because it sees that as a whole, but also the harms to to the person that perpetrated, the person that that that, that did whatever the the offense is. We look at it as one thing what were the harms because that's another thing that gets me too is like where is it when somebody goes from being say an abused child in foster care to becoming the, the, these, you know, super predators. When, when does that happen? To me, there's such a, a meshing of the victim and offender. I mean, most, I, I would be willing to bet that, a, I mean, I know a large percentage, but I would say almost all of the women that are in prison have gone through some kind of victimization of some kind. So when does that happen? So with restorative justice, if you're concentrating on healing the harms, and the whole thing is, and I believe this, people that are healed are less likely to, to harm others. 
it's just but, you know we take a system and we take people and we we take people that are damaged and put them in a system where you're totally powerless you're abused daily minute by minute day by day it it, it doesn't make any sense so and also just like the one of the things i'm really interested in is the concept of space why do prisons have to look the way they are? Why do they have to be dirty, nasty, rotten, awful places? You know, you look at other places in other countries and they have nice places. There's a, there was a restorative project that was done in uh, San Francisco where they actually took um, and had people that were incarcerated there, had them design it and do the whole thing and the changes. And it, and it would be different, but we, we look so much at people's what they deserve. And another thing with my, with I believe strongly with the criminal justice system, we don't punish people for their crime. We punish them for who they are. Like I was, I was not punished because I stole two hundred dollars. I was punished because I was a horrible mother, and I was a horrible person. And who was I to come and 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 do this to them? That's why I was punished. You know, because otherwise we could have done a thing. If it was just that I stole from people, then it could have been where okay. I have consequences. Yeah, I need to pay back the money, you know, do community service, do all those things. And if it was trying to make me a better person, we know what to do to make a better person and we, we choose not to do it on a daily basis. Just say, yeah, <laughs> you know. What are other ways that common people can contribute to making a change? For me, one thing is to acknowledge that there is a huge problem. Um, I think America is great. We, with our, um, the way our system is set up, it's the perfect form of banishment. Um, like if you look at Rikers Island, it sits outside the lar largest city in the United States, one of the largest cities in the world. And most people are kind of know, oh, it's there, but New Yorkers don't know that that's there. It's right there. Um, acknowledging that people, and also, you know, my thing too is, Acknowledging the problem, acknowledge that everyone that's there doesn't necessarily deserve to be there. And once people get out, if people are saying they've paid their debt or they've done whatever, give them that second chance. And people can do that personally on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you hire people that have um, conviction histories. Rent, if you have a place, rent to people that, that have conviction histories. Or even help people beforehand. You know, we're the, the one of the the, the number one thing that people in prison have in common is learning disabilities. So volunteer in your schools, help people, you know, and it, it basically for me, whatever you can do to make your community better, that's what's going to improve the criminal justice system. Because it's about community and still seeing the people that are incarcerated as part of your community. They're not this, this monster that's been put away and then comes back. It's but also just to acknowledge and to really, to become, not, and also what do you vote for? Uh, what do you vote for? And also look at who, where your investment is for your 401k. A lot of 401ks are invested in private prisons. The Correction Corporation of America, people like, you know, the day after Trump was elected, all stocks went down, except for the private prisons went up 43%. So look at, you know, think about what that, that prison is a business. The fact that Marriott's, uh, the Marriott, their, 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 all their furniture and everything are made with prison labor. Look and see who's, what's, what stuff's made with prison labor. Look at what, um, there's, who are the, um, 
the people that provide the food for, for some of these prisons. They're the same people that provide food for some of the colleges. I mean, and see those, see those, see those things and realize that it makes a difference. But basically, my, the most important thing I think people can do is just treat other people with dignity and as human beings and, and, and invest in schools. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Teresa. <laughs>